Let's hear God's word as it comes to the beginning of the Gospel of John, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. We read the gospel from the book of Matthew, these words. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but they did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come, as we come to contemplate what this is all about, we ask your Spirit to touch our hearts. Amen. Emmanuel, God is with us. 
When John Wesley, who founded the Methodist Church, was dying, his last words were recorded as saying this, the best of all is God is with us. These words are Christmas. They are the meaning of everything that we do and everything that we celebrate, the best of all, God is with us. The story of Joseph is a story I keep returning to when I'm thinking about the Christmas story. It's told just in those very few verses that we have read. There is almost nothing else about Joseph in the whole of the New Testament. And yet, in the wonder of the Bible storytelling, those verses are enough because we don't need a flight of fancy or to invent anything or to give any background or have any scholar or historian tell us about ancient um, Israeli wedding practices to get it. A young man pledged to be married days before his wedding. And all of us can enter into what that means, because if it's not our story, it's certainly the story of many members of our families. All that time of expectation, of excitement, of hope, of future, of plans for life, of hoping and wondering and working for the best. And suddenly, it's gone. She is found to be pregnant. And everything falls apart. It's not so much the pregnancy, although we can imagine what that would have meant in a conservative rural community. But it must be for Joseph that moment when he suddenly looks at the whole of his reality through entirely different eyes. She's not who he, who he thought she was. She can't be trusted. She's unfaithful. She's dishonest. Everything she's said and been saying up to that point has been a fabrication. It suddenly must be for that moment as if the scales have fallen off his eyes and his heart now is breaking as he looks and realizes the irony of the whole situation. He's been a fool. He's been deluded. He's been lied to. Everything that he's hoped and invested in is a lie. And you don't need much of a preacher's imagination to enter into that. The point where the meaning, the hope, the expectation, the certainty, the joy are all revealed to be pointless, dishonest, and without meaning. Leave aside that situation just for a moment because we've all at some point stared into that abyss where our darkest fears that the whole thing is utter nonsense, and there is no point, 
has suddenly come and haunted us. And of course, at that point, there is a story. There's a story that she's inviting him to believe, a tale of angels, but it just seems like a desperate, unhinged thing. She might have deluded herself. She might have given herself some comfort in this, but it can't be true. Not a word of it can be true. It just adds insult to injury. This is not the girl he thought he knew. And as he's considering this, and as he's pondering this, and as he's trying to work out how on earth he moves on with life from this point, a dream, an angelic voice speaking to him and saying simply, it's true. Every word of it. You can move on with your life. Your hopes are not in vain. You do not have to be afraid because God is here. And there is Joseph's dilemma. It's a clear decision at that point. Either this is true or this is a lie. There is nothing in between. And his whole life and what he does from this point and that moment when he wakes up the next morning will depend on that decision. He woke from sleep, says verse 24, and did as the Lord commanded him to do and took her as his wife. And on that decision was based the rest of his life. Christmas is for us that same choice. It's as stark as that. The same choice that Jesus gives Joseph. An unbelievable tale and a reassurance from heaven. It is true. And the choice that faces every human being as they encounter this story is as binary as it was from Joseph. It can't be a little bit true any more than Mary could have been a little bit pregnant. It's one or the other. It can't be just a nice tale to get us through the winter's nights and make us feel good any more than Mary's tale of the angels could be something that might help Joseph cope with the fact that she'd been unfaithful. It's either true and you can trust it and depend on it and move forward and base your life and your hopes and your home building and your whole existence on it, or it's the worst of all possible lies that invites you to build everything on nonsense. It's quite fundamental. I'm struck sometimes when you get involved in the stuff of life or the stuff of church, you know, finances and buildings and presbytery plans and, and, and mission plans, that sometimes we spend a whole lot of time thinking about these things and worrying about them and strategizing about them. And we forget that it comes down to Christmas and that choice. For if God is really with us in Jesus Christ, what on earth are we worrying about? And if He is not, what on earth are we doing? John Betjeman 
put it so wonderfully in his poem entitled Just Christmas. Here are the last three verses. And is it true? This most tremendous tale of all, seen in a stained glass window's hue, a baby in an ox's stall, the maker of the stars and sea become a child on earth for me. And is it true? For if it is no loving fingers tying strings around those tissued fripperies, the sweet and silly Christmas things, bath salts, and inexpensive scent, and hideous tie so kindly meant. No love that in a family dwells, no caroling in frosty air, nor all the steeple-shaking bells can with this simple truth compare, that God was man in Palestine and lives today in bread and wine. Is it true? And the truth isn't about the details of the story. Was there a donkey? Who knows? Was there an innkeeper? Not in the story either. Was there even a stable? Interestingly, there's no stable mentioned in the Bible, just a manger, which might have been in various places. It's not about the identity of the star or whether the Magi came that night or a year later. None of that's the point. The point is, born witness in these nativity stories, as brief as they are in the gospel accounts, but coming through the whole of the New Testament witness itself in the teaching of the apostles and the church through the ages, that God became a human being. Not almost, not a little bit, not metaphorically, not allegorically, but truly God becoming a human being. The Word made flesh, and as John says, we have seen Him. In this little passage, it's brought out very clearly as Joseph is told, Jesus will save His people from their sins. And that's really quite key because that's a huge theme in the Gospels, that Jesus is the one that forgives sins. It causes a lot, of, a lot of controversy in the Gospel stories as you read right through them. Why does it cause controversy? Because you cannot possibly forgive a sin that is committed against someone else. If uh, Brian hits Willie, it doesn't make any sense for me to forgive Brian. He didn't hit me. And so, Jesus forgiving sins only makes sense if God is seeing all the sins that human beings commit are ultimately against their Creator in whose image they are made. And I am in Jesus, that Creator, forgiving them. The Pharisees got this. This is why they were outraged when Jesus said, I forgive your sins. And it echoes through the whole of the Bible. It keeps coming down again in the New Testament, time and time again, this claim, I am, I am, I am the Good Shepherd, the Vine. Just as God had said to Moses all those years before, and no Jew would have missed this, I am who I am. 
And if you don't get these big theological truths, these big scriptural truths, just take this. Wise men, shepherds, disciples, all worshipped this child and this man. Right to the end where Thomas falls on his knees and says, My Lord and my God. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was flesh dwelling among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory of the one and only Son. Jesus, God and man, the Scripture very clear. And the virgin birth, a sign of that. Of course, lots of people get hung up on the virgin birth, a big controversy. How can this possibly be true? But it's to miss the point. The biggest miracle is not that the Creator God who made the rules of human reproduction broke them on that one occasion. The biggest truth, the biggest miracle is that Creator God was becoming a human being in Jesus. That is the fact, the claim, the experience on which Christmas Indeed, the whole of the Christian gospel stands or falls. The church has disagreed through the ages over many things and many interpretations, ethics, who goes to heaven, how we celebrate communion, all sorts of things that we have fallen out about and disagreed. But on this one thing, the church has kept coming back to this one truth. that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. God in human flesh, forgiving and worshipped. The story is such a huge claim that we immediately try to duck it and to sort of say it's a little bit true, but let's talk about something else. I'm, I'm very much aware that the preacher's Temptation as we go through Christmas is to take the stories around about Jesus and say other things. One of the remarkable things about the Christmas stories is that God involves people right on the margins. It's women, old and young, that sing the songs while the priests are silent. It's shepherds on the hillsides and not the priests and the people in the temple that first see the glory of God. It's people who are far off, who are not even believers, that there is one God who come rushing. It's always in the margins on the stable. And it is true that we learn much from that. But so many Christmas addresses end up skirting it as they grab onto these things and they say, affirm the people on the margins, rightly so. Affirm the people that come from far off and rightly so. Care for the poor and the excluded because that's the Christmas message. Be like the innkeeper. There was an innkeeper and welcome other people. But what they miss is that all of these characters, as marginal as they are, as much as God's including them, are all in the story pointing to one thing, the child in the manger, God made man. In the beginning of the fourth century, the early church gathered at a place called Nicaea near Constantinople. And they reflected on the fact that the gospel message had kept making it clear that Jesus was God, was really God. 
And yet, through the first 300 years, there had been so many voices who'd come up and said, well, he's sort of God, just like God, but not quite. God speaking through him, but not quite. And other voices said, well, he is God, but not really human. And so, they came to nail it, and they wrote the great creed of the church, the Nicene Creed, which almost laboriously spells it out. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created, one being with the Father. Through Him all things were made for us, for our salvation. He came down from heaven by the power of the Spirit and incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. It actually goes on longer than that, just so we don't miss the point, so that it's quite clear there is no wriggle room. This is what the church believes. It's interesting that the Church of Scotland in the last few years has been struggling about what exactly do we believe. And we've always said that the Bible is our source of authority, but we've always had alongside the Bible something else to guide us in how we interpret that. And for the last 450 years, that has been a document called the Westminster Confession, which was written in 1646. I might have that a year or two wrong. And it's a great document. It was written by people who sat down and thought very carefully about all aspects of Christian belief. The problem is, it's a long document, and on lots of the marginal issues, the church has never quite agreed with it all, and there are much that we can learn from it, but not all of us could recite all of it without a whole load of, well, sort of, and not very sure about. And so, the church for the last decades, as long as I can remember, has been trying to say, we need to replace that 450-year-old document by something else. And we've tried writing other creeds and other ways to express it, and every time we've done that, someone said, that's not quite what I believe. That's not quite right. And the church in the last few years has been returning to update what they believe, and they've been doing that by returning at the core of it, not to something new, but to something old. The Bible as our guide, and that ancient Nicene Creed as the one thing that we come around and we agree on. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father. Through Him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate in the Virgin Mary and was made man. It is the core of what we are. And as Joseph found out and came to believe, if this is true, then we can base our whole life upon it. In fact, there is nothing else that it is logical to do but to base our whole life on it. For God has appeared in Jesus. He who is God from the beginning God, who was terrifying and distant and thundered on mountains, is found in this place, vulnerable, putting Himself into the hands of the very ones He comes to save. To this Christmas points and this question, 
Christmas asks. For here God has come ripping reality apart and inviting everything to change for us. Is this true? And the church responds, yes, we believe. Amen.